My name is Mark Mamagonian. I'm the Director of Academic Affairs at the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research, Nasser, and I'm speaking today with Mr. Jonathan Conlon, who is the author of the new biography, Mr. Five Percent, The Many Lives of Kalust Gulbenkian, the World's Richest Man. Jonathan is a historian who has been at the Courtauld Institute and at Cambridge and at Cambridge and since his appointment to the University of Southampton in 2006 he has taught courses on a wide range of topics from the moral philosophy of Adam Smith through the history of cemeteries to the impact of evolution on Victorian society and he's published a number of books on a similarly wide range of subjects and we are now uh, the beneficiary of his research on Kalust Gulbenkian uh, it's not the first book on Carlos Gulbenkian ever published, not the first biography, but it is probably the most thoroughly researched, and uh, Jonathan had access to the Carlos Gulbenkian Foundation archives uh, to do his research, which we will ask him about in a moment. So Jonathan, thank you for uh, talking to us. What initially drew you to this as a research project, uh, and what did you know or what did you think you knew before going into this about Kalus Gulbenkian before you began your research? Well, as your listeners will have already noted, I'm not a historian of the Middle East, and so I came to Gulbenkian via a roundabout route. My PhD was on the history of the National Gallery, the, the one in London, and in the 1930s Gulbenkian, as it turned out, befriended Kenneth Clark one of the more famous directors of, of that museum. And together they hatched plans for a Gulbenkian annex, which would have been next to the building on Trafalgar Square. Unfortunately, Gulbenkian changed his plans, at least unfortunately for, for Great Britain, which otherwise would have been the inheritor of his art collection as well as his wealth. So that first drew me to the Gulbenkian Foundation and to the archives there. I was then asked to give a conference paper on Gulbenkian as a philanthropist, and that, which is a very complicated story, brought me to the attention of Gulbenkian's descendants, who were curious to explore Gulbenkian's career and life more deeply than had been done before. So, as I mentioned, uh, there have been previous biographies of, uh, of Gulbenkian, including one named Mr. Mr. Five Percent, indeed. Uh, how does your work differ from these previous efforts or resemble them as far as that goes? Well, I think the earliest biography I've been able to track down is written in French in 1930. In other words, while Gulbenkian was very much alive by a distant cousin of his, this was very much a kind of hatchet job intended to try and um, convict Gulbenkian of all his sins, especially towards the Armenian diaspora by supposedly not being generous enough towards it. It was a short pamphlet, uh, but it was based on interviews with Gulbenkian's brothers. Thereafter, however, it was a bit of a gap until Gulbenkian's death. After A few years after that, a Daily Mail journalist, with some help from Nubar, Kalus Gulbenkian's son, published a longer biography, again named Mr. Five Percent, I think mine, uh, that's probably the one that is more easily compared to mine, not just on account of the similar title. I think my book differs from that one insofar as I'm a historian, not a, a journalist. Uh, I had a lot more time than I think the author, Ralph Hewins, had. He had the advantage of being able to speak to members of Gulbenkian's family, uh, more immediate family than, uh, than I could. 
But I think his account was so reliant on stories told or in some cases invented by Newbar that that biography ended up being a kind of, again, a kind of revenge upon its subject by disgruntled family members. I think by the time I got onto the subject, the family didn't really have any axes to grind with their ancestor anymore. So you mentioned previously uh, Gulbenkian's not necessarily smooth relationship with his with his two brothers. Now, of course, people will have to read your book to get uh, all of the details, but can can you tell us a little bit about their their fraught relationships? Yes, well, Kalus is the eldest of three brothers, the younger ones being Karnig and Vahan, and their father dies in 1894 when Kalust is... is a good a few years older than them and he's the only one who's of age so he has a good deal of power over them almost becomes a second father to the youngest to Vahan unfortunately he takes the the family's joint inheritance and speculates with it on in South African mining shares and loses quite a sizable chunk of it and then after that uses his wife's dowry and to in start himself a new a new avenue of research in exploring mining again continuing with mining finance and by leaving his brothers to struggle on as best they could with the money that was left over uh, and eventually they went bankrupt in 1907 it was really from that point on the relationship between the brothers was well and truly poisoned uh, his brothers felt that Kalus should have protected the family's uh, reputation which was very much vested in their in their trading companies but he himself felt that uh, he had turned his back and moved on to pastures new. So Gulbenkian was one of the most prominent of a number of Armenians who were key players in the development of the oil industry in the Near East and in the Caucasus. Uh, and you talk about some of these other individuals and, and families in, in your book. Could you tell us a little bit about Gulbenkian's relationship with these other Armenians in, in the industry and, and did their Armenian-ness play into their relations uh, in a positive or, or negative way? Well, of, of the many Armenian oil magnates that Gulbenkian would have known as he was setting out, Alexander Mantashev of, of Georgia, the modern-day Georgia, then the Russian, Russian Empire and the Caucasus, was certainly the most colorful and probably the, the richest as well, although they were also the, the Gukasovs as well. Gulbenkian's role with regard to them was as intermediary between them and major West, more Western oil companies such as the giants we know today as ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell and BP. And basically what Kalus Gulbenkian helped them do in the years before World War I was to join large cartels intended to control and administer the the flow of oil from Baku and the Russian Caucasus onto markets in Europe as well as in Asia. As with as today, the oil industry is one which tends to, or it's collaboration as much as it does to uh, competition. And Gulbenkian's language skills, particularly his, his fluency in English and French, as well as obviously his native Armenian and Turkish, certainly did place him rather well to act as a kind of, almost one might say, Armenian whisperer insofar as Mantichev had a, had a fearsome reputation as something of a wild man, someone who was rather difficult to control. 
Gulbenkian, by contrast, was very soft-spoken and self-effacing. So Gulbenkian was, in a sense, the, the ideal intermediary. So was the sense that the uh, European uh, companies were, were happy to sort of let Gulbenkian uh, deal with his fellow Armenians because he spoke their language in, in every sense of the word? Uh, Certainly, and I think he, and this is the first of many instances in which Gulbenkian, in a sense, plays up to what we might recognize today as something of a caricature of the Oriental, which was a label he often applied to himself and to when explaining his attitudes towards parenting, for example. So Gulbenkian repeatedly, time after time, um, in a sense, plays up to this cliche that many Westerners would have had then, perhaps some of them still do, of the Oriental as inscrutable, wily, perhaps also dishonest and shifty, and that somehow he could um, speak their language and understand what they were up to, and hence offer a, a certain reassurance to otherwise concerned Western oil powers. Um, so he does the same thing, not just with the Armenians, but with respect to the Arabs and with the Persians as well, presenting himself as someone who has links to Persia, has links to uh, to the Ottoman Empire as well. So you mentioned the Ottoman Empire. Of course, that Gulbenkian was born in the Ottoman Empire, and, and it is, is in some ways a product of the Ottoman Empire, and he's certainly one of the most striking examples of an Ottoman Armenian who uh, was successful in a very big way, all the while existing outside of uh, what we might call normal state structures. Uh, can you talk about his relationship with the Ottoman state uh, during his life and, and career and, and actually with uh, other state powers as well? Yes, I think Gulbenkian for much of his career viewed himself as a state, almost a one-man state in and of itself someone who was used to sitting at the table with other uh, other heads of state, uh, as it were. And I think his, his birth and upbringing within the Ottoman Empire, where if you're Armenian or, or Greek, um, the Ottoman state doesn't really have that much impact on you. You're, you tend to uh, administer your own national affairs, your own, uh, your own millet looks after its, administers its own affairs. And Gulbenkian's family, being members of the elite Amira class, would have been used to doing that and running their own affairs for generations. So I think Gulbenkian is, doesn't really see the state uh, as, as anything given, uh, but as something that can be manipulated, can be outfoxed, um, can be gone around if necessary. But the, uh, some of the major events uh, that that occurred in the late Ottoman period, I'm meaning uh, events that in particular affected the rest of the Armenian community in a, in a more profound way, also affected him. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the 1890s Amidian era massacres. This seems to have had a significant impact on, on Gulbenkian and, and some of the later 19, events such as the 1909 Adana massacres as well. While he may not have been a uh, Armenian activist in the sense that we might use that phrase, uh, these things did affect him. And and how how do you see this having an impact on him? Yes, well, the Amiras were in a very uncomfortable position in the eighteen nineties and the early nineteen hundreds, in that they were very happy with with the status quo, 
for obvious reasons, with the rise of uh, a more politicised sense of Armenian identity and particularly the foundation of the Tashnak and Hunchak parties, as those parties become more activist and more keen on moving movement towards establishing or re-establishing after centuries a sovereign Armenia, uh, the Amiras are rather uncomfortable about that. They are not, Gobenkian himself is not really interested at all in, in setting up a, an independent sovereign Armenia. And so in some cases, and certainly in the wake of the Ottoman bank riots and massacres in 1896, Gobenkian and his family find themselves fleeing, not just from the Bashi Bazooks and the organized genocidal violence of Sultan Abdul Hamid, but also from extortion and threats by fellow Armenians, by by Tashnaks who are see them as collaborators with the Sultan, and also as a a source of funding, uh, a means of securing money with menaces for the national cause. How how fair or unfair do you think that uh, that tag is uh, that 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 the uh, Tashnaks uh, made that that the Gulbenkian was a collaborator with the Ottoman state. In a sense, he was collaborating with the Ottoman state, right? Yes, well, he was an Ottoman diplomat, uh, and indeed members of his family. I was never actually able to nail this down, but it's the family tradition is that his fathers and uncles served as customs collectors in Trabzon and Samsun and other uh, Black Sea Ottoman ports. And he himself wrote reports on advising the sultan's civil lists, in other words, the, the sultan's private treasury on the oil industry and how to make money from uh, from Mesopotamian estates, which the sultan's private, uh, private advisors, fellow Armenians for the most part, had been leading him to, uh, to build up with a view to oil production down the line. So, yes, and, and certainly after the Young Turk Revolution, 1908, Gulbenkian was very intimate and close with the Young Turk finance minister, Javid Bey, which is a relationship which, which underpinned his diplomatic service. And, and how does his relationship with the, well, we'll call it the Turkish state, change after World War I and the, the coming of the end to the Ottoman Empire and the creation of, of the... Republic of Turkey. Mm. Well, with the defeat of the Ottomans and the end of, well, what people think is the end of the war in the Ottoman Empire in in 1918-19, Gulbenkian, who often seemed rather diffident about his hometown and about the Ottoman Empire, becomes very enthusiastic and definitely sees a future for, for investment and personal investment. He thinks about buying a house on the Bosphorus to retire to. He buys up some property in central Istanbul, and unfortunately, those properties end up being confiscated. And I'm, I think it's pretty sure that, that during the war and after the war, he does not have any contact with Javid Bey or any other young Turk ministers. Uh, they try to reach out to him only in 1923, interestingly, during the Lausanne conference, where Javid Bey uh, is tries to contact Gulbenkian to revive the relationship, perhaps trying to seek to to secure Gulbenkian's advice on how the the now Turkish Republic might gain control of Mosul and its oil. Gulbenkian's response is very diffident, however, and nothing comes of this uh, 
contact. So, as you say, Gulbenkian, uh, in a way, saw himself as a, as a state unto himself or, or a state head unto himself. Could he have achieved the far-reaching influence and, and power that he had if he had been uh, identified with an ethno-national state? Well, I think even if he'd been much more involved in the, what we might say, the, the patriotic or political aspect of Armenia, for example, if he had played a more active role in 1919 in supporting the Republic of Armenia, mm. as many Armenians in the diaspora to this day uh, expected him to, I still think that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been a threat to his business activities. It would have taken up time, obviously, which perhaps he would have felt a resource that he was always short of, and he clearly felt that time was best better spent helping Royal Dutch Shell to expand, and in 1919 helping it acquire control of of Mexican Eagle, one of the that country's largest oil producers. So I think that the label Armenia was helpful, though, as I mentioned, his his self self fashioning as an Oriental. And it gave him a clear identity, but one which didn't carry much baggage with it, in that no one had to worry when dealing with him that he was secretly following orders from Yerevan. Mm. Sure. I mean, there, there is, probably down to this day, as you say, a sense of, ah, if only he had devoted more of his resources to helping the Armenian people, how much of an impact he could have made. Do you think that's fair in any way? Well, the some there are some myths that have evolved, which have, in a sense, perhaps solved solved his conscience, as it were, across the across the grave. It's often you often hear accounts that Gobenkian intended to give his entire fortune to the AGBU or to the Republic of Armenia, but according to one version, changed his mind when they refused to name a road after him in Armenia. This is. Uh, pure fantasy and very it would have been very unlike Gulbenkian. He was very far from being a vain man and certainly did not want things named after him. Indeed, that was a source of his irritation with the more typical AGBU traditional model of Armenian philanthropy, whereas as he himself recognized, much of the effort was directed towards buffing up a particular clan's family reputation as much, if not more so, than helping fellow Armenians. And I should mention at this point that we are speaking in the AGBU house in Watertown, Massachusetts right now. So uh, if these walls have ears, you know, that's this, this is just history. Uh, so this is projecting uh, something backwards uh, that maybe can't be projected backwards. But based on the, the research you've done and your reading you've done, can you sum up uh, Kalus Gulbenkian's relationship to what we would nowadays call his Armenian heritage or Armenian ethnicity? Mm, I certainly think the, the family tradition of philanthropy was was key to making him um, consider once he started realizing how much money he was he was making and that this fortune was going to keep on growing, making him think of of philanthropy of helping of helping others. The irony, perhaps, is that he seems to have absorbed, I'm not quite sure where from, he was educated in, partly in London, a very Western individualist focus of kind of self-help, working hard, not, not relying on other, on, on other people. 
So I think in setting up a foundation which was intended to be for all philanthropy, he very much wanted to, to break with a traditional Armenian model of philanthropy focused on, on, its, on its serving its own people. And I think, but I think at the same time, Gulbenkian might have broken with that model, but it would. But as an Armenian, he was uniquely placed and qualified to spy this broader opportunity to make charity about something more that something that doesn't necessarily begin at home. That charity can be truly global, and so my soundbite on that is that Gulbenkian is not a great Armenian philanthropist. He is a great Armenian and a great philanthropist. Mm-hmm. And his son Nubar uh, is an interesting character in, in his own right. How, how, in in what ways did Nubar carry on or or break with with the uh, pattern set by his father? Well, Nubar was his father's only son, and as a young man, was spoiled rotten, and also perhaps was given responsibilities at an age, including traveling to other countries to carry out small errands, business errands for his father, at an age which now seems almost irresponsibly young. So this perhaps t- encouraged his vanity, a certain love of, of luxury, which his father, despite his wealth, did not share. Um, there's a term, a French uh, adjective, rastaquer, to, to describe a kind of flashy, parvenu love of luxury. Gulbenkian certainly did not have this, but he certainly was was on the, hitting the nail on the, on the head when he charged his son Nubar with having it. Mm. So Nubar struggled to achieve independence from his father. His father never quite let him entirely off the leash. And so you have this rather tragic um, sense that of, of a father who's very proud of his son, but never quite willing to let his son have the independence which his son clearly craved. And so Nubar ends up coming across as something of a having a, some something of a drone-like existence. I mean, especially after his father dies, where he's left a sizable amount of money, not a vast sum, but spends the rest of his life um, doing little other than attending boat and car shows and judging judging restaurant and gourmand competitions. So it is rather uh, rather a shame that, out of an excess of love, might one might say. Nubar is denied uh, true agency and the ability to blaze his own trail. Mm. So you're giving uh, a talk tonight, a little while for us, entitled Kalust Gulbenkian and the Basterma Problem, which sounds a little bit like a uh, Sherlock Holmes story. What is the Basterma Problem, Jonathan? Well, the Basterma Problem, and I can't claim to have invented it, it was, it was Rita Gulbenkian's only daughter who came up with it, in 1944, I think what she meant by that was that, buzz, that the, the, the dilemma that I mean, that she felt she was placed in as an Armenian who, on the one hand, hadn't been raised to go to the Armenian church regularly, didn't really know much about Armenia as a state, and had no great interest in going there, but recognized that she, her, with that her physical appearance and other things made it impossible for her to pass as anything other than Armenian or to, to assimilate. So Bazdurma, she chose as a kind of way of referring to the sense of an identity that you can't take off like a set of clothes, because if you've eaten Bazdurma, even before you open your mouth, the smell 
which is not easily forgotten, is there to remind people around you of where you really come from. So the Bastomer problem is how do you how do you come to terms with that with that identity do you do you embrace it you obviously can't deny it but um you might not necessarily want it to define you completely so how do you think her her father uh faced this question and was he conscious not not necessarily in those words but was he conscious of this issue is it something that he self-consciously wrestled with uh or was it just something that was in the background for him I think Rita, in in the letter where she coins this phrase, the Bastoma problem, makes it clear that this is a problem that she feels her father, as a genius, or a special number, as she calls him, is somehow qualified as a superman, as it were, to avoid and to escape. It's a problem that she feels the rest of the family have to deal with. Interesting, yes. So... After all of your research uh, and you, all of your writing in assembling the book, what do you think are the uh, most significant misconceptions about Gulbenkian that either you encountered or that you went into the book with or that your book dispels? I was really surprised to find how much of a, of a lover of nature he was. Um, it's well known that he liked cats, but that was just part of a much broader, deep um, love of the natural environment and an eye for landscape, for which in his case extended to the design landscape, to, to landscape architecture, to gardens. He was a great admirer of Versailles and sought to create his own ideal garden near Deauville, what's now the Parc Calouste Gulbenkian. And I think that, in, to a large extent, softens what can otherwise appear a rather forbidding character. Mm. A lot of the other myths around him, for example, that he owed his success to knowing exactly how much to bribe people, bakshish, in other words, uh, I certainly found no evidence that, that he was an expert at bribery. But it does, uh, it does perhaps suggest some of these stories, the extent to which they might have been invented and spread by 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 fellow Armenians perhaps struggling to make sense of his success when he seemed to be breaking so many of the rules that they associated with uh, responsibility towards family and to the Armenian nation. So maybe this is a strange place to end, but uh, speaking of misconceptions and cats, there seems to be an impression that Gulbenkian and his love for cats formed the uh, inspiration for a a character in uh, James Bond stories. Can you can you uh, either affirm or destroy this impression? Uh, in my book, I very carefully sort of set this up without quite nailing down whether <laughs> whether it was in fact Gulbenkian who inspired the white angora cat stroking Ernst Stavro Blofeld as a baddie. We do know that Ian Fleming, who had worked briefly for Gulbenkian, one of Gulbenkian's brokers in, in London, Nelka Phillips, in the 1930s, we know that, they're, that they were both in Lisbon during World War II. Fleming was there as a secret agent on Operation GoldenEye and was staying in the same hotel. So Gulbenkian would have been down in the dining room uh, twice a day at least, and it was known that one of his three suites at the Hotel Aviche in Lisbon was being gradually taken apart by his precious collection of white angora cats. So uh, 
I'll leave it for the reader and your listeners to decide whether they find that persuasive or not. <laughs> Anything else you would like to say about Gulbenkian that anyone uh, won't get from the book? No, okay. not really. Then I would say uh, that people should check out the book, Mr. 5%, The uh, Many Lives of Kalus Gulbenkian, The World's Richest Man. It's a significant contribution to our... Uh, knowledge about this character uh, and and the many, many uh, parts of the history of his times that he was involved in, including, uh, including the Armenian bits. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. So thank you very much for talking and, and thank you for your great work. Thank you.